Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, what do you think are the main criticisms coming from post postmodernism and directed towards modernism that you would say are are relevant? Uh, so I talk about these in my Quillette article called "The Impasse Between Modernism and, and Postmodernism." So I'll just repeat what I say there. Uh, you know, if if you think of the what are the two greatest achievements of modernism, at least, you know. Sort of like what, what the kinds of things Pinker is talking about. Uh, I, at least I would pick uh, liberal values. By liberal values, I mean rule of law, constitutional government, uh, freedom of speech, and so on, uh, on one hand, and then I- empirical science on the other. Okay, well, uh, let's take empirical science. Uh, you know, Kant is one of the important figures in, in the uh, tradition of empirical science. He's not just a major philosopher, but a major contributor to 18th century science as well. And he's also the founder of what's called scientific racism. So I, I supply a quote in that article that I wrote for Quillette that, uh, that I just mentioned uh, that's quite rank racism. And it's not just he's got racist attitudes and sentiments. He's using his knowledge of science and his discoveries in science to underwrite his racism. Uh, that's the kind of thing that postmodernism has drawn our attention to, uh, quite rightly. And you know, Aristotle is another good example whom I mentioned. Aristotle um, adopts the misogyny of uh, fourth-century Athens, which you know is a kind of misogyny rivaled, in my knowledge, only by the Taliban. And uh, quotes approvingly a poet who says that silence is a woman's glory. Aristotle has underwrites that with a psychological theory that. Uh, women, although they have some reason, they're they're not able to control their emotions using it. And he's got that's again a psychological theory that he underwrites with his embryological theory. He thinks that uh, females are malformed males, uh, and it even goes down into his ontology. He thinks you know every human being, like every other organism, is a combination of form and matter, and the form is the male principle, and the matter is the female principle, and the problem with women is that the the formal principle didn't really master the matter. So anyway, uh, that's that's scientific sexism. Uh, so you've got this tradition in the history of science where what's being presented as science, not by marginal people, but as central people, you know, heroes of the scientific tradition. I think we would all say Aristotle and Kant are these heroes of the scientific tradition. We're not going to take that away from them, but one also has to recognize that they used their science to underwrite their prejudices against other races and against uh, women in the case of, of Aristotle that I mentioned. So I think those are very good postmodern critiques. Now, as, as is typical of the postmodern authors uh, and you know, people working in that tradition nowadays, they go too far. They'll say, well, that, you know, that, that shows we can't trust evolutionary psychology because evolutionary psychology is just like Aristotle. Right? They'll say that's just using the pretense of science to, or they might even say science, to underwrite prejudices. And I think that's lazy. That's usually a, a, a failure to read the stuff and see this is not like Aristotle. This is good uh, data being done by conscientious people uh, that's, you know, been rigorously scrutinized. And I'm not saying everything that's published under the rubric of evolutionary psychology is correct. I'm just saying that one has to take the field seriously and sift through what's good and what's bad in it, as one does with any science, but that you know, there is developing, it seems to me, within that uh, body of literature, a, a consensus about natural sex differences uh, that are still rejected by most uh, humanities professors, for example, uh, you know, many of whom are under the influence of postmodern philosophy, often quite explicitly. So, I mean, that would be the critique of science that I think postmodernism uh, gets right insofar as it keeps itself restrained and doesn't overblow its, uh, its claims. And then when it comes to the political achievements of modernism that that I want to preserve, like liberal values, as I described earlier, uh, I go on more about this in my articles than I probably should here, but that the social contract uh, tradition that's most often used to underwrite those liberal values makes presuppositions uh, that are false. And the postmodernist critique is sort of roughly this, that when those liberal thinkers imagine a state of nature, or in Rawls' case, an original position, uh, although they claim to be imagining abstract human beings, usually what they're doing is imagining people like themselves, namely, you know, white males and so on. And 
uh, and as a result, excluding certain features and, and, uh, of um, uh, female sex difference. And here's, you know, as I point out in the article, here's an ironic convergence between some of the feminist postmodernist critics of liberalism and evolutionary psychology, because those feminist critics will say, you know, you're leaving out the female perspective, and here you've got evolutionary psychology, which is saying, yeah, we've got good science, science and what the female perspective is on so, some of these moral intuitions and so on. Uh, and, you know, that's a way in which... Feminism can be enhanced by evolutionary psychology, and it's too bad that that, that it, many of the feminists have this hostility uh, to it. So just sort of summarizing, I would say that uh, although I'm a liberal, and I've written articles for Quillette explaining the way in which I'm a liberal, the way in which I think liberalism has to be underwritten, I think it's been underwritten in a false way with this kind of social contract tradition that has made it susceptible to postmodern critiques, and probably prejudices have been built into uh, the practice of liberalism because of the truth of some of those critiques. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but I think that the criticism you made to the early scientists, uh, the modern scientists would answer to that something along the lines of, oh, but, uh, okay, that could be valid uh, back at that time, right. but right. now, but nowadays we have all these checks and balances, and yeah. we have, and we have the empiricist validation, and we have peer review, sure. and we sure. know, and even if you are still, we are still susceptible to the bias and the heuristics everyone is susceptible yes. to, yes. that we acknowledge this. And yes. so, and so that perhaps nowadays the criticism that you made no longer no longer holds water. Yeah. Well, I would say that those checks and balances are terrific, and they're going to filter out some of the the noise and the the, the dirt from uh, scientific practice. But I think it's naive to think that they're going to get it all. Uh, that's sort of like thinking like the checks of the checks and balances of the U.S. Constitution are going to guarantee that the United States government is always just. I mean, it, it's it's helpful that I think the United States Constitution is a brilliant device, but uh, the founders weren't so naive to think that 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 solved the political problem once and forever. They recognize what you need in every generation is people who understand what this government is about, uh, what what the natural rights are, uh, why it functions this way, how you perform these procedures. Ultimately, the success of the government re relies not so much on the checks and balances, as, as important as those are for filtering out some things. It ultimately relies on the virtue of the people. So too, I want to say, in the case of science, you've got these checks and balances, peer review and so on, uh, but that I think it's naive to think that's going to filter out all the noise and the dirt. You ultimately have to rely on the virtue of the scientists, because you know you could have a cabal of people in, in the prestigious journals who uh, could be, you know, just to take a crude example that, you know, would be easily exposed, you know, who are serving certain monetary interests because they're greedy. So you've got to have a virtuous body of scientists. Now, there's not, nothing's going to guarantee that you have a virtuous body. I'm not, there's no guarantee of anything here is possible. But there has to be a recognition that the character of scientists matters to the practice of science. And if that's the case, then we should build into our training of scientists, just as we should build into our training of any intellectual uh, character training. And we don't. Uh, and that, there are all sorts of reasons for that, because we'd probably come to fisticuffs over what's a good character and what the virtues are and what the values should be and so on. But it doesn't solve the problem by saying, okay, well, we're not going to do it then. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, an another thing that you think the, that you refer to in one of your articles on Quillette is that uh, you refer to economic inequality, right? Uh, and that uh, another one of the criticisms coming from postmodernism, and that perhaps modernism doesn't address that well, is the economic yeah. inequality that der derives or is a byproduct of capitalism. Uh, could you talk? Uh, I may have said that. I don't. I don't remember saying that. But uh, you remember my work better than I do, so I'll trust you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly. I mean, let me just try and elaborate the point, whether it's mine or not. Clearly, capitalism is not a self-sustaining economic model. And by that, I don't mean it's, it's expiring and we're going to have something else. What I mean is, at every moment that capitalism succeeds, when it does, because I think sometimes it does, but in order to succeed, it requires people of certain character. I mean, if you've got completely unscrupulous people who really think the only point in life is making money... Uh, running things, you're going to get a certain kind of capitalism, like like you got at the end of the 19th century in uh, Northern England and uh, Pittsburgh, for example. And uh, you know we were saved by that 
uh, from that, excuse me, uh, by all sorts of historical circumstances, but we never solved the problem, which is unsolvable, which is that uh, to, for capitalism to function, you've got to have people who have limits on their desires. And, you know, religion performed uh, an important purpose in uh, training people in character and uh, giving them moral ideals and, and re requiring them to be charitable and so on. And, uh, you know, we're, we're adjusting to a world in, in which religion is of declining importance. If we think of institutions, uh, it's more secular. You know, the religious impulses are still there, obviously. But, uh, you know, we're seeing... We're doing an experiment, and how do you how do you run a society uh, where fewer and fewer people are are gathering around these stories of supernatural significance that teach moral lessons? And you know, you can explain some of the faults in our current uh, economic problems. I think with that, but you know, I'm pre-associating on an idea that I'm not. Re I don't remember. Uh, uh, say. Yeah, but 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 you think that uh, economic inequality as we have it nowadays. Uh, that could be a problem that could leave uh, that could lead to social erosion. Yes, yeah, so I mean it's complicated. I'm not an economist, but uh, you know, take the Pinker charts. Uh, you know, global wealth is is on, a, on an impressive uh, uphill. So first of all, we have to think about what perspective are we taking a global perspective? Well, looks like we're doing really well in that respect. Uh, but if you narrow your focus to, let's say, the United States, uh, which, you know, obviously I know better than global economics, um, then uh, even if, you know, the trend is up uh, in aggregate, it's down for certain segments of the population. And if those segments of the population, because of the way the U.S. Constitution assigns electoral votes and so on, can swing an election, if they feel like they're being left out, and they're angry and they're willing to shoot the moon with a basically uh, madman, then uh, you're going to have danger, not just for the United States, but for the entire world. So at, at that level of resolution, certainly economic inequality is a, is a serious problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but uh, I mean, uh, how Steven Pinker puts it, and I hope that, I, that I'm not um, painting a bad picture of what he says here, but yeah. as far as I understand it, in Enlightenment now, he, say, he argues that, and I, I, don't, I can't remember his sources now, but yeah. he, he argues that uh, even though we have... Uh, more economic inequality, for example, in the U.S. Uh, since the 70s, 80s, I think. 1981, Reagan's, uh, you know, his, his economic revolution with his, uh, with his tax plan, uh, that revolution. So, yeah, you can, you can trace the stagnation of middle-class income to 1981, I think. Anyway, sorry. Uh, uh, and there was also the economic crash in 1975? Or something around that? Nope. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. So the '70s were tough economically for the United States. I think primarily because of uh, having to pay for the Vietnam War, but you know, also the OPEC crisis, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but what, what he says is something along these lines that even though inequality is increasing in an economical perspective, right. that since the pie, the total pie, is enlarged. That right, even right. even though uh, the piece of the pie in terms of percentage uh, sure. that uh, that for example the lower middle class has uh, uh, didn't uh, grow uh, right. let's say let's say for example that the piece of the pie was originally five percent and nowadays right. is still five percent but since the pie has grown uh, right. uh, due to economic uh, growing. Uh, 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 that that uh, nowadays people, on the one hand, uh, still have uh, more economic resources because yes. of that, and on the other hand, because we progress technologically, that, for example, uh, one dollar in today's dollars yes. uh, uh, can help us uh, buy, for example, a smartphone, 
or yeah. or an internet service, okay. Okay. Uh, uh, and and that same dollar, uh, let's say four years ago or even one hundred years ago, yeah. uh, uh, th there wasn't any amount of dollars that yeah, okay. uh, that could allow people to buy what we have now technologically. Okay, so. Um I, the way I would make that point is to distinguish between sort of a, absolute wealth and relative wealth. And in absolute wealth, I'm richer than the kings of Greece, as a, as are you and everybody watching this. So like, I'm wearing a clean shirt, for example. Only only the only the, the wealthiest of the wealthy in antiquity had clean clothes. I can use indoor plumbing uh, that none of them could. So you know, I could go on and on the ways in which my life is much better off than even the the kings of Greece. Uh, so why am I so resentful about the economy, if I am? Uh, that's relative wealth. So, I, and I think that's real. In other words, I, you know, one has to be mature uh, to, to the extent one recognizes, okay, historically speaking, I've got it pretty good, I should be grateful for that, and that's, that's true. But then also, uh, when the pie is growing for everybody, but it's not growing for me, I'm not speaking about myself necessarily, but, you know, I'm speaking for this stagnant middle class that we were discussing a moment ago, uh, it begins to seem unjust if it's not being distributed somewhat equally between the rich, the middle class, and, and the poor. I mean, again, that would be a, a meta-relative uh, distribution because it wouldn't be totally equal. But, but at any rate, uh, you know, when the CEO is making 200 times the wage of the worker on the floor, uh, it, probably more than that by now, as compared with you know Japan or Germany, where it's it's much closer uh, to the wage of the person on the floor. I mean, it's not not close, but it's still not two hundred. Um, that creates resentment, and I think that's real. And I and I don't want to say that's being immature. I think you know there's a real sense of injustice about that. So uh, I don't know whether Pinker uh, takes account of that or not. You know, this is a point made really well. If somebody wants to see somebody else make it. Uh, and it's probably on my mind because I've just seen Francis Fukuyama make it in a conversation with uh, Charles Murray in the, the Cardinal Conversations from, from this week. It's online on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Pinker really addresses that point as well. And, okay. he's, and he says that, um, and I really can't remember the sources now, but, okay. uh, but, but he says something along the lines of, um, he shows some, uh, some data, and, and then he says that, uh, according to that data that he collected, uh, that uh, even even with uh, a certain degree of economic inequality, uh, and I and uh, uh, to the point I understood it, he is saying that even if economic inequality reaches a, a point where it is really really large. Uh, in the order of, I don't know, uh, the top CEO earning uh, hundreds or thousands of times more than yeah, sure. uh, than one of his employees, uh, that um, it, it is not proven that even if people perceive uh, that inequality, uh, yeah. that they are unhappy with it, if they have, they, they feel that, that what they have is enough, is enough for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the obvious critique of that, to which I, I assume he has to have a reply, is the Marxist critique of uh, false consciousness. So, um, you know, uh, a typical Marxist critique of justice is that, uh, that you can find in Plato's Republic, Thrasymachus makes this point, that uh, justice is an ideology, the liberal justice especially, an ideology that the the proletariat uh, is being taught so that they won't become unhappy with their miserable station. And I don't think you can use subjective assessments of how happy people are with their poverty as a justification for not giving them more uh, because it's susceptible to that critique. Now, there, there could be a reply to that. Uh, you know, that's a common objection uh, that, that well, anyone who's familiar with Marx or Plato, for that matter, will make. So I wonder how he replies. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that point. Yeah. But, I mean, but let's imagine this. Can I? Can I just spell it out as an example? Let's look yeah. back. Let's look back to, uh, you know, to the to the fifth. You know, the four, We've been talking about the fourth century BC. So let's talk about the fourth century BC. Uh, you've got uh, a, a narrow class of aristocrats in Athens. 
of which Plato was one. And as I say, I'm and you are living better now in many ways than than they were then. Okay, and then you've got uh, slaves, of course, and so we'll just keep them out of the picture because that complicates things. Let's talk about the freeborn people who are not part of the aristocracy. They're 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 mostly poor, uh, you know, small plots of land, tiny little businesses, and so on, and you know, in the abject conditions of fourth century Athens. All right, now imagine. Uh, and we're looking back. Now imagine we can watch history progress. Imagine history progresses, and we're thinking just about Athens for the moment, and the aristocracy of Athens gets richer and richer and richer and richer to the point where they, they become like, you know, now it's 2018, and they're like the CEOs of today. But the poor have remained exactly the way they were uh, from from that period. So they're still living in dirt huts and they don't have uh, plumbing and so on and so on. You know, I'm exaggerating obviously to make the point. Imagine that they're happy with that because the aristocrats have been very good at persuading them that, you know, they're going to have a better life in heaven, you know, because the meek shall inherit the earth or whatever. I mean, that's the Marxist critique of the opiate of the masses. Uh, surely we, we're going to say something's wrong with that regardless of how they feel. Objectively speaking, they're being treated unjustly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, but but to that, I think I know the reply Stephen Pinker w would give, uh, and he would say that. Um, let me think a bit. Uh, okay, I, I lost my train of thought. Here. Um, Okay, we, we were talking about... Uh, ah, okay, okay, I remember now. Uh, he would say that, uh, and, and this I think, I think he is also proven, that uh, we can't really think about economic inequality as the same group of people uh, through time and through history uh, uh, being in the same place, for example, at the top or at the bottom, because there, are, there is a lot of... Uh, economic yeah. mobility. Yeah, right. And so the one percent is not always composed of the same people. Yeah, yeah. And and for example, in America, even if you come from a lower middle class society, yeah. uh, And if you attend uh, a higher learning university, uh, elite university, and so on and so forth, and yeah. if you have a good career. Uh, and if you are an entrepreneur and, and some, or something like that, uh, th that uh, you you have a good possibility of, of being at least in some time of your life in yeah. the one percent, in the zero point one percent, okay. and yeah. and and the one percent can also fall to the yeah. bottom or yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, and you know, I'm way beyond my expertise at this point. I'm just a guy, you know, talking to you about these things that are interesting to me. Uh, one thing that that seems to leave out, to which Prinker Noto has a reply as well, is is luck. So yeah, if you've got the right background and the right IQ and the right education, you can vault yourself into that top one percent or that top zero point one percent, unless you know you you have a series of. Uh, difficult illnesses and uh, injuries and so on in your family that to which you have to attend or that you suffer and so on and uh, you know no just political order can guarantee against bad luck but we have in the United States uh, you know an insurance system when it comes to medical insurance where you know if you you know if you're middle class you can you can bear a certain number of uh, bad luck instances but you not too many uh, or else you go bankrupt so uh, you know, I, I think and Pinker's a Canadian, as am I, so uh, socialized medicine doesn't seem so bad. Uh, so I, I suspect that, you know, he would, uh, he would agree with me that you, you want some kind of guarantee that people, uh, you know, don't completely fall off uh, the productive uh, uh, wagon uh, because of bad luck in health. Uh, yeah, yeah, and the, and the knowledge is luck. Uh, luck. In people's lives, yeah. So, and is for the benefit the benefit system. But, yeah. <laughs> and and I mean now I recalled something that I watched I think uh, last week that that was a debate. Uh, do you know uh, IQ squared? That, that uh, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, they they had a, de a debate. Uh, about the benefit system uh, and the, uh, the, 
on one of the sides there was a guy called uh, David Perkins that studies um, that studies neurobiology and the, and a certain at a certain point he was arguing that uh, we have to analyze the benefit system carefully because according to what he studied uh, it could uh, it could be benefiting people that uh, didn't want to work that in terms of uh, psychometrics uh, were uh, disagreeable uh, on the one <laughs> hand and and and, uh, had, um, and and weren't conscious uh, conscious enough uh, they had a uh, um, conscientious uh, yeah. uh, conscientious yes that, that's the word they weren't conscientious enough uh, and so we would have to analyze carefully the benefit system because according to him if we were to be giving money to those people since they are disagreeable and not conscientious enough yes. uh, uh, th that they would simply not uh, look for work even <laughs> yeah well he thing is even if he's right about that that just might be a cost of an otherwise more beneficial system uh, yeah, and, and now turning back to postmodernism, but to uh, to how post postmodernism is manifesting in university campus um, mm -hmm. recently. Okay. Uh, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? And uh, for example, what are your thoughts about the what has been happening in Canada and in America, for example, uh, at uh, Evergre Evergreen State University and with Lindsay Shepard at Wilfrid Laurier and so yeah. on. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to have anything to say that hasn't been said by other people uh, more thoroughly and more eloquently. I mean, a lot, a lot of the viewpoints on Quillette, for example, about those incidents are, are viewpoints and arguments that I share. Uh, and I, I've written about uh, about the uh, evergreen, I don't think I published that though. So, uh, but you know, I've seen people making the same points on Quillette. There's no need for me to publish what I wrote last summer. Uh, but I allude to it in uh, the impasse between modernism and, and postmodernism article that I mentioned earlier. That begins with uh, a mention of the campus wars, and uh, yeah. at, at that point, I said, "Look, the worst one so far has been evergreen," and. Uh, the ones that I picked after that were Reed College. I haven't followed that story since then. I'm not sure what's happening with their uh, basic humanities course, which was subject to daily protests because it was considered to be too white European and so on. Uh, the Lindsay Shepard thing was was awful. I mean, I mean, you know, and for every Lindsay Shepard who who records, you know, there are probably a hundred who don't. So it's happening all over the place. Yeah, and even the case of Lindsay Shepard, in the end, we got to know that there wasn't even any complaint to begin with. <laughs> right, so, right, yeah. So. You know, and um, in an earlier interview I did with Benjamin Boyce, whom I think you know, mm -hmm. uh, we talked a, in a lot of detail about this, and uh, and the Lindsay Shepard thing was fresher. And I, I think he asked me, you know, have I experienced anything like this at, at my college? And, and I said I hadn't. And although I haven't uh, suffered any consequences uh, because of this zeitgeist that we're going through, uh, I'm starting to see now some signs of it on my campus. And, and I joked at the time that um, Mark Twain apparently said of Pittsburgh, uh, it's where he wanted to be at the end of the world because everything happens here 10 years later. And uh, that's true, I found, of, of my university. So it, uh, if, if not 10 years, then six months. So, you know, I'm now... Uh, my department drafted a statement on diversity, and it it uh, had a paragraph that mentioned implicit bias, microaggressions, stereotype threat, all of those, uh, you know, in some cases pseudo psychological um, concepts. You know, some of which are genuine psychological concepts, but have been but but have been oversold to people outside psychology who want to influence hiring and uh, curriculum and and uh, teaching conduct and so on uh, so my, my, my department uh, you know now is is officially endorsing those kinds of things by putting them I believe it's ultimately going to end up at the website 
Uh, I've been sick, so I haven't been able to. I've been injured, rather. But I, so I'm, I wasn't even at the meeting where that got agreed to. I would have protested if I'd been there, and, and it, I would have been one or two of, of a group of twelve who would have protested to it. So it's it is it's seeping it's seeping into places where even it wasn't six months ago. And like I said, I still haven't suffered any bad consequences, but I don't know um, what a, an official statement from my department about its mission that includes mentions of implicit bias, microaggression, stereotype, threat, and, and all the rest. I don't know how those things are going to be weaponized uh, to uh, suppress free speech the way in which they have at uh, Evergreen and at uh, Wilfrid Laurier and a dozen other places that we all know about now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's even arriving here in Portugal, because, for example, here in Portugal, we tend to be, or at least the vast majority of people tend to be more conservative and right. more liberal. So right. it's more difficult for those things to arrive here. But, for yes. example, last year, we, all, we already had uh, a lecturer deplatformed in yes. a university by a group of 30 students. Uh, oh, that means that the vast majority of students were not assessed right. about that. Right. It was only that group of 30 people that decided right. to deplatform right. him, yeah. and the other people couldn't even have an opinion about it right. because no one asked them, and they then simply pressed uh, the school administration. And so yeah. uh, yes. Uh, and uh, and more recently, uh, there, there have been popping up more, more and more LGBTQ and so on centers in mm -hmm. universities. We we have we have uh, one just last week uh, in in Lisbon, uh, and and then and then, and another thing, and that I've been talking with other people, and I have interviews with them in my channel. Uh, uh, for example, with Oren Amite and with James Caspian from the UK and so on, is that uh, uh, there are now some bills being discussed in the at the level of the uh, parliamentary subcommission for equality here in Portugal, uh, and I mean with those bills, uh, those bills include things like uh, allowing people. Uh, as young as 16 to go to simply go to the civil registry without having been seen by a doctor uh, okay. without any medical report or anything like that to go to the civil registry and decide to change their sex and name mm -hmm. so just out of a whim let's say mm -hmm. uh, and and then also uh, they also include things like being able to start a legal action against the parents if they oppose the 16-year-old on that decision. Uh, and also, and I think that, that these points are the, the two most problematic points of the bills, that is, uh, in their theoretical foundations, they include the fact that... Uh, Gender is completely uh, sociological or even individual construction. Mm -hmm. no, nothing to do with biology. So, uh, and, and that's one point. So if that uh, is put into the body of law, I would say that people uh, like those groups in universities, those groups of students who could, uh, could pick that up and, and start to push against biology teachers, evolutionary psychology teachers, and so on and so forth, because they could say, oh, but now it's in the law that right. this is incorrect. Right. Uh, and they could even push for more specific bills on that. Uh, and, and then the other point, uh, the other point is that it includes in its definitions uh, indirect discrimination <laughs> and i mean what is indirect discrimination the, uh, what they say is uh, is something along the lines of oh if someone in a certain situation makes certain kinds of remarks even if not directly to someone or towards someone then that should be considered discrimination as well and should be uh, the person that that does that sh should be should be that should be considered a crime or something like that yeah 
Yeah, I'm no legal expert, but one thing one has to do in drafting a law, as, as anyone who thinks about the law knows, is be specific. And if you leave wide open some kind of uh, interpretation, I, again, I don't know what the meaning of indirect in the law is. Maybe it has a specific definition, but there's certainly reason to worry about that. And it sounds like there are some of the, you have some of the Peterson worries, uh, I mean, the kind of worries that Peterson had about C-16 in Canada, um, which turned out to be prophetic, I think, in, in the case of the Lindsay Shepard case, where, you know, legal experts at the time, uh, one of my friends, for example, in October 2016, when Peterson first started complaining about C-16, I had a friend who's a legal expert say, you know, he's not reading the law correctly, it's not going to have the consequences that he said it was going to have. And, and I think as a strictly legal matter, my friend was right. But I think Peterson was speaking, whether he wanted to or not, prophetically about the cultural effect. So uh, again, my friend was probably right about the, the legal consequences, but that the law was going to be picked up in the culture the way it was it, at uh, Wilfrid Laurier, so that when Lindsay Shepard was before that uh, star chamber, uh, interrogation that uh, they use C-16 to uh, as a cudgel against her and you know they weren't lawyers so they didn't give the precise reading that my friend who's the legal expert and the other legal experts of Ontario at the time gave instead they were appropriating it giving it giving their prejudices in the end the, the prestige of the law I just wanted to say about the LGBTQ centers that you said are popping up around campus I don't oppose that I mean I don't have any problem with homosexuality or transgender uh, queerness and so on uh, and so people for whom that's an important part of their identity have every right to organize centers on campuses I, uh, I just want to make it clear that, that I'm fine with that what I, what I do oppose is the way that those centers can be used as they were you as it was used in the Wilfrid Laurier case where it wasn't even a student, as I gather, who complained uh, against Lindsay Shepard. It was that somebody in the LGBTQ center got wind that a Peterson video had been shown in, uh, in Lindsay Shepard's seminar, and that the LGBTQ, LGBTQ center complained, uh, or at least somebody in that center complained. So, again, the, the notion of LGBTQ centers is fine. And, uh, it's just that it, those can't then become... Uh, cells for the suppression of free speech in a university that undermines the whole purpose of a university. Yeah, and the thing is, is that the, these kinds of bills are even harmful to trans people because, for example, I talked with uh, James Caspian in my second interview for my channel and uh, the case of James Caspian is also very illustrative of this. He, he, he tried to do research about uh, what he, what he discovered to be an increasing number of trans people that went through uh, surgery or hormonal therapy or something like that and then regretted it uh, and and some of them already went through surgery and they even talked with uh, Dr. Miroslav Djordjevic that is from Serbia because he performs a lot of sex reassignment surgeries there and he al he's also been noticing the fact that uh, there's been an increasing number of people recently that go back to them and say, oh no, I, I regretted it and now I want to go back uh, to the body I had and so on and so forth. And, and uh, they didn't let James Caspian do this research to, to go to people, to people who had regretted their surgeries and so on, and, and to do a qualitative analysis. Yeah. Uh, of their experiences and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, they didn't allow him to do this because uh, even if it is important to know these sorts of things to help those people that yeah. go through that, uh, they didn't allow him because they thought they could receive a lot of criticism mainly through social media if they published yeah. the, yeah. the thesis afterwards yeah. and so on. So. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, maybe stepping up to a higher level of generalization about these cases, I think, you know, a uh, fear that you and I seem to share and that, you know, a number of the people that you've mentioned whom I follow uh, also share is a, um, a suspicion of science. That is that uh, a political agenda is being put before careful, uh, sober inquiry uh, using the scientific method into these things. And, and that it's it's, you know, What's really worth being upset about is, well, obviously threats to children. So I don't know the details again of the law in Portugal, but I, mm -hmm. I understand that one could be concerned 
uh, that uh, children are being given more power than they have the maturity to uh, to use properly. Um, so one one should be concerned about uh, about that. But uh, I think also, and this is something I, I do feel entitled to speak with a little more authority about because I've been writing about it, uh, is is that uh, you know when these political agendas are being used to compromise science and freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, that's when we need to get uh, really really concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and in the in the specific case, primarily because. Uh, people are trying to do research to help trans people right and even that research is prohibited in some yeah. way or another yeah i mean so i i i one of the my first article for quillat was about the james demore case and yeah. uh you know i i supported james demore and i the, the article was uh, i took what i i I have many uh, progressive friends. Most of my friends are progressive. Naturally, I'm in the in the academy, so most humanities professors are, are progressive. And so, uh, many of my friends were sharing articles critical of James Damore. And the one that everyone agreed was the best one uh, was this economist critique of James Damore's memo. And uh, so I took that and I replied to it. And that was the substance of my Quillette article. I said, look, here are the 17 points this economist article made, and only one of them is worth taking seriously. The other 16 are fallacious. And uh, I forget what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> About well, James Damore. And... Yeah, I got distracted. What were we going to say right before that? Well, well, well just yeah, tell me your last point. It might remind me what I was... Uh... Oh, my last point was about helping trans people through these methods oh, of research yeah. that are yeah, prohibited yeah, yeah. and so on. I remember. So uh, I've sort of become known uh, among my circle of friends as a person who's taking this unpopular position. You know, in, in my circles, it's very unpopular to speak to support Demore or or to teach evolutionary psychology, which I've done, um, and so on. And um, so, uh, but, I, they're, but they're my friends, so they have a certain level of trust in me. And even if they don't want to speak publicly, like on a Facebook page, they'll write me private messages. And uh, the most intelligent and candid have said something like this to me, that although, uh, Patrick, I agree with those points that you're making, you know, the science seems pretty sound and so on, I just don't think you should be making those points in public because they're politically volatile, they're going to get picked up by the alt-right, you know, they're gonna, you're going to get used as cover for an evil agenda and so on. And uh, I disagree, I mean, maybe that will happen, I, I don't think it will, but uh, even if it does, I disagree with that argument because it's it's injecting too much fear into the debate and not enough confidence that if you pursue the truth uh, you know with 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 the right intentions that uh, you, you, you don't have anything to fear I mean you know bad things can can always happen certainly but that there seems to be a uh, among these friends that I'm talking about who I think are kind of indicative indicative of the best of the kind of progressive uh, professors that I know uh, there's there's just a, a, a lack of confidence in what we do, which is pursuing the truth and the of uh, the most important questions in human life, and there seems to be a a feeling like we we got guardrails and we can pursue the truth, but we got to stay within these rails because if we go out these rails, something bad might happen. Even if our vocation calls us to go outside those rails, and I I'm I'm happy to go outside the rails. I've always seen myself as trying to pursue the truth regardless of how it turns out because I'm confident that the world is ultimately good. I mean, my Platonism kind of gives me a a confidence there. And, you know, and I had that confidence before I discovered Plato, I think. One, one just has that kind of feeling, I suppose. Um, but, you know, so, I'm, you know, thinking about what I'm meeting, the resistance that I'm meeting, and it sounds like kind of resistance that these people who are um, trying to help these transgender people are meeting as well, uh, this feeling that not all inquiries are allowed to be done, that because some truths are just too dangerous. And, uh, you know, that seems to me a battle line. That you know, you either are interested in finding out what the truth of the world is, or you're interested in making things turn out the way you want them to turn out. And I guess I'm too cynical about political agendas to think people who are trying to make things turn out the way they want to turn out are going to do any better than people who are pursuing the truth, no matter what it is. Yeah, and and with that we get to the point of uh, talking about how perhaps some kinds of truth. Uh, shouldn't be shouldn't be accessible at least by some people so for example uh, perhaps uh, truths like 
uh, how to create the Ebola virus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not saying, I mean, I believe in state secrets and so on. I'm not saying that every truth should be on WikiLeaks. Um, I'm not taking a position on the WikiLeaks thing, but I'm just saying, yeah, you don't want, you know, I don't know, direct, you know, complete instructions for how to build a nuclear bomb uh, just on anybody's website. Uh, maybe maybe they are already. Maybe it's a technical problem. Yeah, no, I, I believe I believe in you know some limits to information. But it seems to me philosophers, if nobody else, that's our job is to inquire into truths about the most important things in life. And so it's been very frustrating to me to see that there are guardrails and that they seem to be hardening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and earlier I think that you wanted to talk about how Foucault and and others um, misinterpreted or misused Nietzsche. Ah. Oh, well, I, I think we came to it. I mean, it, we, we did, you know, talk a little bit about the eternal return. And I don't think this is an interview for us to get into the details of the eternal return. Although if you've read all of Nietzsche, I'd love to do another interview where we just uh, talk about Nietzsche. But let's oh, maybe okay, save okay, that. Okay, great, great. Save that uh, for uh, uh, and another thing that uh, I think it was about Wittgenstein that we were about to talk. Okay, uh, if you like. Um, so Wittgenstein... Uh, had a, a set of notes that uh, were published after his death, I believe, called On Certainty. I could be wrong about the publication date, but I believe that they were published posthumously. And, um, you know, Wittgenstein's not a skeptic, although he has a lot of skeptical tendencies. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I think he and Quine, you know, who uh, I think knew each other, I think they were part of the same circle for a while, uh, I think they agree about this. So let me describe it in, in Quine's terms that I think are quite vivid, and I think it's the same view that you get in Uncertainty of uh, Wittgenstein. Uh, Quine thought that everybody has what he called a web of belief, so that you know every, every nodule or node is one of your beliefs, and that they're connected, because after all, you change one belief, then it has consequences for beliefs, uh, you know, that... Uh, you know, you change, you get a new belief that could be inconsistent with other beliefs, so the nodes are going to have to shift around. Uh, isn't that similar to another notion coming from Jean Baudrillard, where he where he said that uh, our minds are structured and our language is structured uh, under a web of meaning? Ah, well, I, uh, the web, the web, uh, the web metaphor works in all kinds of contexts, and so I'd say, yeah, we've got a web of meaning and we've got a web of belief, and you know, they overlap. Uh, you know, and, and these are metaphors. It's not like there are two webs, but uh, but sticking with the web of belief for the moment, um, you know, Quine's point was that you, not just that you change one belief, other beliefs are going to change, but that just like a spider web, you can make changes to the periphery of a web without doing much damage to the web. The closer you get to the middle, the more you have to change to keep the web intact. And since going through life, you know, it's I don't know that he had a psychology of this, but it's easy enough to see what the psychology is. We need a web of belief to live, to, to engage with the world. It's got to have some kind of coherence. Otherwise, you know, you become dissociated or psychotic or whatever. You got to keep it together. And as a result, you're, you're able somewhat readily to change the beliefs that are at the periphery, but you can't very readily, if at all, change the beliefs at the center. Although they are changeable. So I shouldn't, shouldn't say if at all. You can change those. It just is going to take a lot. So, you know, you believe that it's raining outside, you look outside and it's sunny. The belief that you had that it was raining outside, that's really at the periphery of your web of belief. Now you change it. Big deal. Your life is... But, you know, the principle of non-contradiction or God doesn't exist or, or, you know, things that are, for some people at any rate, central to the way they live. Uh, you got to make a lot of changes to get to that change. And then once you make that change, you've got to rework your whole web. So... Uh, I've used Quine's an analogy, but I think that's the idea of uncertainty by Wittgenstein. And since you asked me about Wittgenstein, I think this is the point that I hesitated to make back in, in the earlier conversation, that uh, Foucault's point about discourses, I think, is is like that web of belief or the uncertainty point of, of Wittgenstein. That these nodules, yeah. you can think of them purely intellectually as beliefs, but I think it's just as fine to think about them as nodes of power and to think of them as maybe combinations of belief, truth, power, the way Foucault wanted to. And uh, so that makes Wittgenstein or, and Quine sound kind of French and postmodern. And so uh, the reason I, I hesitate to get into it is because I was at that moment in the conversation drawing a distinction between the Anglo-American tradition, which was consistent with the Enlightenment in its self-conception, the French tradition, which uh, after 1968 certainly broke with the Enlightenment. But... Uh, 
you know, there were, there were bridges. And I think, you know, I think the analytic uh, Anglo-American philosophical world has loosened up a lot since I was in graduate school in the 90s and uh, has started to recognize, you know, some of those components of itself. Uh, but, you know, certainly when I was training, it was an enlightenment tradition in its self-conception. Even while it thought Quine and Wittgenstein were great philosophers, I don't think it really saw how that's ultimately a relativist position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah but, but, but I think that uh, Wittgenstein, uh, when he talks about language, uh, also establishes, even though probably didn't know about that back then, with the, I don't know if you know about this, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis yes, from right. linguistics. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, and, yeah. you know, Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, you can make the same kind of relativist point about changing beliefs. And, you know, that was considered a, a, a mainstream work in the Anglo-American tradition as well. So there's a, there's a lot of crossover um, between the two. And, you know, even if it's not intentional crossover, it's some of the same, what we would call, I think, in this conversation, postmodern ideas, or I would call from the ancient tradition, sophistic ideas, are, you know, gaining momentum through the second half of the 20th century and seem to have kind of exploded uh, into popular consciousness in the last few years. Well, and if you follow uh, Stephen Hicks' line of thought, he even traces postmodernism back to Rousseau and, and Kant because of, of the Kant's epistemology and so on, because of okay. the, uh, how did he call it, the noumenon and the phenomenon, right? Yeah, yeah, so, you know, I haven't read that book, but uh, you know, once once you say philosophy is now not about the world, but it's about the mind, uh, yeah. you know, then you're on a certain trajectory that you can in the next move say now it's not about the mind, it's about language, and then that's where we started that conversation. Uh, well, I think it's an hour and a half ago now about postmodernism. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think I've covered everything I wanted to cover today with you. So, I mean, do do you want to? to leave any final remarks today and and of course we'll we'll have to have another conversation okay. just about Nietzsche okay all right I'll brush up on my Nietzsche yeah I will have to do the same I, okay. I, I've read all these books uh, in 2011 or, or uh, something like that so. you read them all in one year that must have been an intense year yeah because I picked I picked one up, and then, oh man, this is so good, I picked yeah. the next one, yeah. and the next yeah. one, and the next one, yeah, and right, I, right, I, right. I couldn't stop. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll look forward to that. I'll look forward to that conversation. I'll look forward to seeing, uh, seeing this online as well. Oh, I will have to separate it in three or four or five oh, okay. parts. Oh, okay. <laughs> because right. I have almost three hours of recording. Okay. So okay. Th this is almost a Joe Rogan interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'm flattered. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but but I really liked it. Good. Okay. Well, I should get down. I got to have some lunch before another meeting. Okay. Okay. Well, well, thank you for being here with us today and take care. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye-bye.